Listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we dive into the issues that are making headlines in our city, our state, and across our country. I'm Celeste Katz Marston, and it's an absolute delight to be back here with you once again. Sorry I had to give you a miss last week, but here we are again, reunited, and it feels so good. Our mission here is to delve deep into the heart of politics, policy, and really look at the issues that shape our world and impact our lives. So we are going to navigate with you through this political landscape because it is a tough job. We hope we are up to it and we think we are. Every week we bring you the inside scoop on what's making headlines and why it matters. But we don't stop there. Our show goes beyond the sound bites to connect with individuals who are crafting the policies or maybe unsung heroes working tirelessly behind the scenes to influence the course of our nation. And now with great pleasure, I'd like to introduce my spectacular co-host Jeff Simmons, like me, he's a news junkie who knows the headlines, but also he has a particular knack for uncovering untold stories that really shape our political discourse. Jeff, how are you today? I really, really missed you last week, Celestine. You know, it was a, as you know, our listeners who were tuning in last week, it was a challenging episode for me because of, uh, you know, losing my pets this, uh, this summer. And we interviewed or I interviewed an author about uh, pet loss. But we're going to move past that. We're going to get into headlines today, a topic that's been dominating discussion across the country about book banning. And we'll get to that just a little later. But before we do that, I do want to take a moment just to be able to let our listeners know this is a very, very special week for our Celeste Katz-Marston. She finally turned 30, I believe it is. Celeste, happy birthday this week. That is correct. But I am turning 38 for the <laughs> second time, uh, maybe more often than that. But thank you, Jeff. And also, oh, oh. And, yeah. and your husband as well is also celebrating his birthday. I believe that might even be today, if I'm correct, Jonathan's birthday. That is correct. So happy birthday, sweetheart, and many, many more. Thank you, Jeff, for bringing that up. I appreciate that. And <laughs> no problem. So, yeah. So I guess what he, I don't know, what is he getting for his birthday? Is it a resolution to the speaker thing in the house right now? Because I'm not too sure about that, Jeff. Right before we came on the air, I was just checking in on a couple of headlines. And so it looks like Jim Jordan was in it and then he didn't get it and then he was going to get out of it. And now he's back in it. What What is with this? What is going on here? It is whiplash. I know. I did the same thing. I checked the headlines right before we start the show. And then within the last hour, about an hour ago, then he said he was going to push for another vote to become speaker, even though there seems to be growing opposition or growing block of Republican opponents here. So who knows if he's going to be successful this time around, Celeste? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like every time they do a new round of voting, he's actually losing support, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken here. And obviously, Jim Jordan, for, for anybody who's not too familiar with him, he has been around quite a bit, though. So I bet especially people who listen to WBAI are kind of with it and they follow these things. But obviously, Jim Jordan is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He's trying to become speaker to replace uh, Kevin McCarthy of California, who just got the boot. Uh, Jordan's from Ohio. And he is um, 
attempting to do this, but, uh, and he's also at the same time, of course, a big supporter of the former president, Donald J. Trump. And that may be sort of the crux of the issue. Even people mm -hmm. in uh, the conservative wing, some of the people in the most conservative wing of the Republican Party are saying this guy is just too far out there for them. So I don't know if he's going to make it, Jeff, but the main point of all of this right, is that something has to get done because the House has business to work on, the people's business to work on. And oh, I don't know, maybe like averting a government shutdown, shutdown. that might be a, a good one to be on the list. No, I was just about to say the exact same thing about averting a government shutdown. Let's see what happens in this case. Lots of other things in the headlines, but I know that, you know, you and I have discussed this about the topic that we're going to be addressing today. Uh, just a few weeks ago, it was, uh, you know, banned book weeks, uh, week, and from October 1st to the 7th, a lot of our libraries, especially here in New York City, were doing things and across the country to raise visibility about the surge of book bans that are going on across the country. We're going to dive into this with, uh, two experts throughout the show today. We're going to also try to find some time. Uh, to uh, have our listeners weigh in as well. But Celeste, you know, I'm a big reader. I tend to go through withdrawal if I don't read a book regularly. I'm always interested in following the news about the literary sector. And right now, there are just challenges across our country. One of the big battlegrounds is Florida. Another is Texas. Uh, but in Florida, uh, you know, our listeners obviously know about this, but just in case you just tuned in and discovered BAI for the first time, this is where presidential candidate and uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has banned hundreds of books censoring themes centered on race, history, sexual orientation and gender in Florida. Educators could lose their jobs and school districts can be sued and fined. So how are publishers and schools and libraries adapting to this? This is a question we want to explore. We're going to dive into today. These are complex issues. These are some of the questions we're going to explore in this segment. So please stay with us throughout Driving Forces today because we've got some compelling insights and interviews lined up. And together we will uncover the layers of this unfolding story. Two uh, recent developments I just want to let you know about. Before Celeste uh, intros our first guest, the conservative group Moms for Liberty, they have opened, this is an organization that has pushed for a lot of these bans. They've opened a chapter now here in New York City, very kind of discreetly. They want to take aim at our public school system here in the city. That's according to a report in the media outlet, The 74. A former schools counselor at the Department of Education uh, started this group after feeling alarmed by COVID closures, LGBTQ plus inclusion, and required diversity and equity workshops that she felt framed staff as quote unquote white supremacists. And in other news, something Celeste pointed out to me as well, following the, uh, that the news that Scholastic said that it's book fairs at elementary schools. Now we're going to have a separate section for titles that deal with race, gender, and sexuality. This, according to the Times and the Washington Post, this came about in response to a flurry of these state laws on restricting how these subjects can be discussed in schools. So the publisher, by the way, says, we don't pretend this solution is perfect, but the other option would be to not offer these books at all, which is something that we'd, which is not something that we'd consider. 
So that brings us right to today's first guest. So here to shed light on the critical issues surrounding book bans, censorship, and their impact on society is Casey Meehan, the director of the Freedom to Read Project at PEN America, which has been at the forefront of promoting free expression, literature, and human rights. With a background in human rights advocacy and a deep-rooted belief in the power of literature, Casey's role at PEN America involves research, analysis, and advocacy efforts to counter the growing threat of book bans and censorship across the United States. Casey, without further ado, welcome to Driving Forces. Oh, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Welcome to the program. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, thank you for having me. So maybe you can just start out by giving everybody a bit of an overview. What is the Freedom to Read Project and what is its mission at PEN America? Sure. Um, our, so as you mentioned, I mean, PEN America's larger mission is to stand at the intersection of literature and human rights in protecting free expression in the United States and worldwide. Our Freedom to Read program is one of the ways in which we stand by our mission. Um, and this program specifically, you know, really aims to activate public will, to object to book bans, um, to reverse and eliminate current trends of book banning, um, and ultimately to ensure students have public access to a diversity of literature and books. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. We purposely did not give the numbers before you came on because we know that PEN America really has tracked this. You've reported on this. You've published highlights on the surge of book bans across our country. Could you fill our listeners in on the scope of the of the bans across the country so they have a good handle on how this surge is, how you know vast this surge is? Yeah, and we have, you know, a lot of numbers to share, so you can always, you know, move me along. Um, but I'll just give a bit of an overview here. PEN America um, provides annual reports that look at school years. So what's unique about PEN America's research versus um, other research that's collected by other organizations like NCAC or ALA is that we uh, look at book bans happening in public school, classroom or public school libraries. Um, and what we've seen over, you know, the last, school years, so the most recent school year being, you know, the prior school year, not the one we're currently in, but during the 2022-2023 school year, we recorded 3,362 instances of book bans in the United States public school classrooms and libraries. Um, That is a 33% increase from the prior school year, the 2021-2022 school year. Um, This last 2022-2023 school year, these instances of book bans uh, equate to over 1,500 unique book titles being removed, um, which impacts the works of over 1,400 authors, illustrators, and translators. Um, we see, again, the way in which this movement continues to persist from school year to school year. We're actively tracking the current 2022 to 2024 school year and have already seen some alarming trends um, to suggest that, you know, the, the campaign to censor is, is still uh, you know, kind of rolling full steam ahead. Um, but those are some of our, you know, those are some of the largest numbers. Over the two school years that we've been able to record to date, the 2021 through 2023 school year, uh, all of our, you know, tracking has, has counted to over, to just nearly um, over 5,000, just under 6,000 instances of book bans um, across public schools, uh, over 33 states and over 150 some school districts. So, you know, we really do see a scale and magnitude of this movement that's um, unprecedented and certainly alarming. 
And Casey, tell us some more about which kinds of books are being targeted. Is it because of the authors? Is it because of the subject matter? Is it because of the uh, language or, or graphic descriptions of, of this, that, and the other? You know, wh- who's really sort of in the crosshairs of this right now? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the movement uh, to ban books is certainly shifting. So when we first looked at books that were being banned during the 2020 uh, one to 2022 school year, overwhelmingly, we saw the books that were targeted for removal uh, featured characters of color or LGBTQ plus identities and themes. Um, th- since, last, since that first school year, this most recent school year, the 2022 to 2023 school year, we've seen the way in which efforts to ban books are increasingly pulling a broad uh, swath of literature. Um, so this year we saw... Um, almost half of books banned include themes or instances of violence and physical abuse. Uh, we saw topics on health and well-being for students being banned and removed from schools. We, can t- we continued to see the way in which books that included characters of color, um, talked about race and racism, or included LGBTQ plus characters were overwhelmingly targeted, um, as well as an increased focus on uh, books that included any sexual experience between characters. Um, so we certainly see the way in which, you know, the movement continues to expand um, to, to sweep up a wide swath of literature, as well as, you know, health-related content or sexual education content, um, historical biographies of, you know, individuals of color or um, LGBTQ plus figures. So it really is a broadening movement as well. And just to follow up on that, I'm curious about whether you see this skewing more towards people objecting to uh, more recent books, you know, sort of the YA genre, for example, is, is really huge. But I mean, just thinking back to the kinds of books that we read in school, I mean, I don't know, I'll just pick one at total random, like Lord of the Flies, for example, is extremely, an extremely violent book. It has all sorts of, of uh, very graphic descriptions of children uh, fighting and uh, even worse, obviously. I'm just curious as to, does this apply, are people applying this as much to the classics if they're applying it at all? Or does this really seem focused on sort of newer publications? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, You know, we often see books like kind of classic canons, like The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison or The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, um, Perks of Being a Wallflower, um, you know, books that have historic, that we all have, you know, can remember reading, um, works by Judy Bloom. Um, So there are many books that continue to be challenged, although they have most certainly been in, you know, classrooms and schools for years, books that we can, you know, again, we can all um, even remember reading or, you know, having as part of our library collection or in our instructional materials when we were in um, high school. In addition to that, we certainly see um, efforts to remove what you mentioned as well, these very contemporary young adult um, novels that have been published, you know, in the last three years. Um, about 61% of all books banned um, from this last 2022 to 2023 school year were young adult novels. Um, so it certainly is a overwhelming focus of the books that are being uh, swept up in this movement. 
You're listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Here on today's program, we're discussing the proliferation of book bans across the country, and we're talking with Casey Meehan, director of the Freedom to Read Project at PEN America. So, Casey, uh, Jeff alluded to this a little bit in the uh, introduction to the show, but I did want to ask you about it, uh, this more recent news about Scholastic sort of, I, I can't think of another word for it, but segregating out certain uh, books with certain topics, maybe related to race or related to sexuality and saying, we will still offer these books, but we will offer them separately from other books in our collection at book fairs and, you know, these kind of events, which I loved as a kid. And, do you, and, and this is obviously sort of an imperfect attempt to walk a tightrope on this. They don't want to not offer the books at all, but they also don't want to get kicked out of schools, I guess. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you um, have described what is like a very complicated, um, you know, situation with um, several, you know, pressures and um you know, pressures at play here. So, you know, Pen, Pen America, we re- even released this statement just earlier this week um, where we, you know, ag- agree and share the dismay that we're hearing from authors and many others um, around this partitioning, right, of, of certain books, books by um, a diverse group of authors that have been limited or partitioned because of the content of those books. Um, we, you know, we, we speak out against that response um, and, you know, part of what we say in our statement is, is also that we have to, um, you know, lay blame on some of these pressures who are putting Scholastic, as well as other publishers, um, schools themselves, in impossible situations when it comes to ensuring the access to diverse books for students. Um, so we see the way in which, you know, and we've heard from Scholastic, the way in which they're, you know, attempting to respond to legislation, um, as well as pressures of local advocacy groups uh, that will likely challenge the, you know, the books that are um, being provided through fairs. Uh, and we, we, we watch that play out all the time, the way in which this a very uh, intense climate of, of pressures from both, you know, your very localized uh, community advocacy group met with um, legislation that can be uh, promoting the removal of books that include certain types of content, um, have really, you know, built out a larger climate of fear uh, that we see trickling over to publishers and school fairs and, um, you know, author visits and many other um, experiences for children and the way in which, uh, you know, I think Scholastic's situation is quite illuminating um, around this growing climate of censorship that many are having to, to navigate. Uh, we certainly Can hope that see- Scholastic will find a way through this. I should end with that. Um, and, you know, we hope that we could be a partner in that, too. Casey, what are the long-term consequences of book bans on intellectual freedom and education? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is it's such a big question. <laughs> um, I think about this usually across, like, many different angles at any given point in the day. Um, you know, I think immediately we are hearing the way in which when books are being mischaracterized as harmful or um, perhaps even more uh, alarming is when the identities or the stories and the history presented in those books are also being conflated as harmful or age-inappropriate 
um, or, you know, sexually explicit. Like, students hear hear that, um, and if they see themselves reflected in those books, then they see the equivalent messages that are being placed um, on, you know, the uh, equivalent sort of mislabeling that's being placed on those books. Um, And so that, you know, that continues to alarm me and many others in the short term. I think we've also seen the way in which public school systems are increasingly burdened as they try and navigate, uh, you know, what's happening. And it's very, um, you know, when students, when, when, sorry, when schools are faced with just unprecedented levels of challenges, it can be both costly in terms of time and um, personnel and staff and, and figuring out how to respond. Um, so that's another piece that is really putting a strain on our public institutions. Um, and longer term, I mean, ultimately what we see happening is a growing effort to seed mistrust in public education and public institutions. Um, and I think that, you know, threatens sort of the core of intellectual freedom and education and, and the role that these institutions serve in our democracy and in our in serving our pluralistic um, society. So sort of at all ends of the spectrum, there is there's concern here. And I know we only have about a minute or two left, and you know, and it's a it's a big question I'm going to ask, but I would love to get your insight in this for our listeners. If people are listening to this and they're getting angry about this, what can they do? What does Pan America recommend that people do if they want to be able to counter this growing issue of book bans across the country? Uh, yeah, there are, and I should you know, there are so many incredible organizations, national organizations like Penn and ALA and NCSC and others. Um, as well as local organizations that are organized by parents and students and librarians and educators that are really um, pushing back already against this effort to censor and remove books from schools. So um, I would consi- I would urge folks to you know find that group that's common that's like-minded and has um, you know it just is upholding and advocating for the freedom to read. Um, and additionally, you know, I'll just say Pen America, since I know we're running short on time, Pen America has lots of ways to get involved. Everything from reading a book that has been banned, combating some of the misinformation around the banned book, um, writing to your elected officials, going to a school board and speaking on the principles of the freedom to read. And you can find all of that on our website at www.pen.org slash action or um, follow us on social media. The most easy thing to do, <laughs> which is at Pen America. Uh, Casey Mann is director of the Freedom to Read Project at PEN America. And Casey, we want to thank you so much for joining us here today on Driving Forces to talk about this very, very important issue. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. Jeff, that was really, really great. I'm so glad you got Casey on here to talk about this program because, I don't know, I feel like growing up, I felt like these things were sort of far away, something that you might see on the news or maybe not see on the news. Maybe it was something that was just happening super sort of hyper locally and you weren't aware of it. But now I feel like we are hearing more about it. And in a way that's terrible because it's, you know, happening more often, but in a way it's good because we're talking about it and talking about how dangerous this can be. And I think that, I don't know, well, what do you think, Jeff? I think that in some ways the the dangers that might be posed to children by being exposed to to some of this material are are far outweighed by the dangers of of litigating and legislating what people are allowed to to know essentially 
you know, it's so interesting because as Casey was speaking, I was trying to reflect back on if I was aware of this when I was young or when I was even a teenager, the books we were allowed to read or not allowed to read, the ones that were presented to us that, you know, we needed to read for class. And I don't remember, you know, I mean, look, I do remember some of the books having, you know, plot lines and content that these days might not pass muster with some of these organizations that wants to ban them. But I also start to think of parental choice and, you know, that, you know, I'm not a parent. I know you have six kids, so this is going to be very important to you. But, 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 but this is the type of thing that as a parent, you know, you, you, I think should have some say with your decision at home. But then I, you know, but then I start to think about what's important for, you know, for our schools and our libraries as well, and being able to allow people to make their own decisions and their own choices. And by the way, before we get to our next guest, I just want to mention that because we're talking about free speech today, this is the type of radio station that provides this type of content to you because we are free speech community radio. So if you just tuned in, I do want to do our, you know, our weekly plug for listener support because we rely on you. You are the folks, the people who are listening to us right now. You are the folks that keep us on the air, that keep WBAI on the air. So if you've got a moment during the show, during any show, on WBAI, take a few minutes, become a BAI buddy where you give a sustaining contribution that just goes on your credit card every month of say 15 or $20. It will help us stay on the air because it all adds up. And what it adds up to is quality programming like this. So take a few moments, give us a call at 212-209-2950 or go to the WBAI website at WBAI.org and you can make a donation to support us. Any amount matters. Very important for us. So please take that moment and support us. So let me move right along and bring on our next guest. Mana Karazi is the Rapid Response Campaign Director at Move On, which is known for its advocacy on progressive and social justice issues. She's got a very strong background in grassroots organizing and has been actively involved in various campaigns to defend civil liberties and to promote social justice. Currently, she's leading Move On's efforts to address the issue of book banning across the United States and to raise awareness about the threat that it poses to freedom of expression. Mana Karazi, thank you so much for joining us here on Driving Forces today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off by just having you tell our listeners about Move On and your role as the Rapid Response Campaign Director, because I'd love for them to know a little bit of that before we move into the topic. Yeah, definitely. So Move On is a huge grassroots organization, and we do everything from advocacy to political work to electoral work. I'm its rapid response campaign director. So a lot of times when there's something that's happening like the book bans or abortion, I end up doing a lot of the work around it. I love my work. Uh, I'm from the South, so I'm much more of an in-person organizer and campaigner, uh, surrounded by some incredible digital campaigners, and I get to go into the community like I did with our band bookmobile. So, Monique, uh, Move On has uh, organized and just launched this thing called the Artists Against Book Bands campaign. So tell us about that. Who's who's involved in that? Yeah, definitely. So it's our campaign is part of our larger Read Ban Books campaign, which is designed to highlight how extremists are restricting freedom by censoring books across the country. And that's why I'm part of the band's bookmobile and we've been traveling with it. 
Um, one of the most exciting things to say is that LeVar Burton has been partnering with us on this campaign. He's the literacy champion, uh, former host of Reading Rainbow. I think a lot of us are fans. I'm pretty sure I learned English from him. Um, and so <laughs> we've gotten to have a chance to work with him, um, which obviously I'm a huge fan. But we've also gotten to work with a lot of award-winning writers, including many whose works have been banned, like Judy Bloom, Jody Picoult, Amanda Gorman, Roxane Gay, Margaret Atwood, which obviously is very relevant. Um, we've also gotten to work with some actors like Gabriel, Gabrielle Union, Zoe Deschanel, Sharon Stone, performers uh, who hit every generation, so Ariana Grande, uh, Adina Menzel, uh, and even directors like Judd Apatow and Guillermo del Toro. So it's been a huge list of creatives and artists of all uh, sectors that have been working with us. Well, it makes a lot of sense that people who are in the creative arts would be uh, behind this, right? Because uh, their their work, their livelihood, their art comes from uh, writing, comes from freedom of expression. So how will people actually hear from them? I, I imagine it's more than them just uh, signing a petition, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of folks have been doing great work in their local communities. LaVarber has been involved all across the country. Uh, and he's also been working with various organizations. I know American Library Associ Association also works with him. But we also have artists and creatives who are out there who are trying to champion this. Because as you said, a threat to one form of art is a threat to all. A lot of them have been doing events, whether it's virtual or in person. There's been readings from some books that they have supported or that played a role in their own lives. Um, and I think it's just been an incredible opportunity because... There's definitely been a lot of threats against uh, not just educators, but artists. And I think that that's what's been really powerful about seeing our Artists Against Bookman work. You know what I'd love to know, Mana, and thank you so much for joining us today, is, you know, why this is so important to you? Why is book banning a dangerous form of censorship and exclusion and how it impacts our broader society? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you look at history, every place that has struggled and dealt with authoritarianism has uh, one of the first signs was this kind of censorship. The idea that you can censor not just the, the stories, and the stories are a reflection of us, right? And they're a reflection of our diversity. And that's been a big part of what's under attack. But it's also the idea of just critical thinking to, to want our young folks to not be able to read stories. Yesterday, I did an event uh, in Charlottesville and it was multi-generational. And I asked folks if any of them had experienced it when they were going through school. And there was not a single arm raised. That in itself is a reflection. We're talking about people that have been going to school decades. Uh, and our ages were really different. The fact that our young folks were facing all of these threats already, who already don't feel safe in school, and are getting a pretty terrible legacy from us that they're inheriting, the fact that they're now also having to have their schools, their classrooms be at the heart of a political fight is unfair. And the fact is that our educators, our parents, our advocates, we're all the majority of people in this country are not in support of these book bans. I've gone to go all across the South to places most people don't even get to visit. And I've been hanging out with all of these people. And it's been great to be in community with book lovers but it is really frightening to hear stories from some of the teachers who've been fired or from some librarians who don't even feel comfortable to admit 
that they're attending these events with us to see the kind of struggles that they're facing at school. And the majority of the time, it's just one person, a lot of times not even in their district, who hasn't even read the book that they're trying to ban, who's the one that's attacking them. There was an article that came out recently. The majority of the book bans are uh, credited to 11 people in this country. This is just a reflection of this bigger political argument, and extremists are taking this to the classrooms and the schools, and they're attacking spaces that should actually be safe for our kids. We're talking to Mana Karazi, Rabbit Response Campaign Director at Move On. And Mana, I want to ask you, in, in these cases where uh, people are not, I don't know, maybe they are, are they running, they're not running necessarily into libraries, grabbing the books off the shelves and, and tossing them into a garbage can or into a fire. These are policy decisions, right? These are, these are public policy decisions that are made by school boards or maybe uh, town councils or city councils or something like that. I'm just curious to know, you know, how does this actually happen? And do you get the sense that the people who are making these policies believe that these books should not be read by children? Or are they bowing to some sort of uh, public or political pressure? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, no one's saying that these books have to be read by all children. We're saying that every parent has a choice to make. The issue is, one parent, one person doesn't get to take that choice away from everyone else in the classroom. And that's what's happening. A lot of times, and there's actually some great legislation that Representative Rapp, who came to one of our events in Pittsburgh, told us about. He's pushed legislation as an advocate for the people who are banning to show that they've read it, <laughs> to, actually, to actually show evidence of them having read it and having issues with it. And there needs to be some sort of open uh, form to discuss it. That's just one example. In reality, I think a lot of times what's happening is locally, there's some sort of political argument. Someone in a school board uh, candidate who was out in Ohio and Cleveland was telling me about how there's one person that just shows up to their meetings and is trolling them and reading the same one book at every meeting. So I think the reality is it's not really about it being a democratic process. The issue is that a very small minority of folks are getting involved. And whether it's coming from the people in the school board or the town council who are the ones that are pushing this, or if it's just them giving in to someone else, it's still a reflection of a very small group of people, which is why it's really important for us to be in those spaces and to not forget that school board uh, elections matter, meetings matter. I got to see um, a couple high schoolers and one who was a college freshman in Chapel Hill who told me that they listened to the Zoom school board hearing. I can't imagine at 16 <laughs> taking time out of my day to listen to those. Those meetings can go on, but that's how important an issue it's become for younger folks. And I'm going to let Jeff jump in here in one second, but I just wanted to ask you, in terms of the, the types of books that have been banned, there's there's a book I'm thinking of that has, I would say, an extraordinary amount of uh, violence, uh, sexual activity, um, uh, race, uh, ethnicity, uh, faith-based stuff. And I'm just curious, have you heard of this book being banned in any of the communities uh, where you are working on this issue? And that would be the Bible. <laughs> you know, I hear this, I think, uh, in almost every town I've gone to. So 
someone just mentioned this in Charlottesville. I have not. Um, I've heard of children's books. I've heard of uh, um, James and the Giant Peach being banned, but I've not heard of this. No. Mm. So, and thank you, Celeste, for letting me in. Kidding. Uh, but more, more, serious, more seriously, more seriously, <laughs> I know we only have a few minutes left, but, you know, I want to look ahead to the future. You know, where do you see this going? Do you see pe more people rising up to counter all the efforts to challenge all the efforts to ban books? Or do you think of something Celeste touched on before that we're still going to see a number of our policymakers, our elected officials kind of bowing to the much smaller group of folks who are challenging these books being available to youth because they just don't want to get mired in controversy and they think I've just got to be able to do this. Where do you see this going? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, because I've been going to these events, and if you ever get a chance, please come out to one, I'm extremely hopeful. I've seen all sorts of folks coming out to these events. And the reason I'm hopeful is, one, they're I should say we, we all are going to elect champions locally who are not going to be bowing down, but who are actually going to be pushing again, like Rep Representative Rab in Pennsylvania. And two, I've seen some incredible things coming out of some of the young folks. I got to do an event in Atlanta with Georgia Youth Justice Coalition. There was a high schooler, uh, Shivy, who is in Forsyth County, which is not an easy county to be in, in the suburbs of Atlanta, not even in the city. And she's one against these book bans. And she's one of many high school students in that area who's been able to actually fight back and win against most of the book bans. We are the majority, and I think folks are starting to take their, their power, and they're realizing that our librarians, our educators, our young folks need us to show up and people are starting to show up. Mana Karazi is Rapid Response Campaign Director at Move On. And Mana, where can people find out more about you and your work? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm from the South, so I didn't really learn uh, to be online as much as I should. But you can learn more about our work at artistsagainstbookbans.com. It's a great place to go sign our petition. And you can go to moveon.org slash bookmobile. And if there's an event in your neighborhood or in your community, I'll probably be there. Thank you so much, Manakarazi of Move On. It's a pleasure to have you here today on Driving Forces. Thank you so much for having me. So now we want to hear from you, our listeners, about today's topic, which is book bans. Where do we draw the line? What is acceptable? What is not? Are there books that should be banned? Where do you see all this headed? Give us a call at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. We're going to take a short break now, and then we'll be taking your calls. So here's XTC's Books Are Burning. Books are
Books are burning. XTC here on Driving Forces, WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, an avid reader, an avid reader, perhaps of burned books. We're discussing the pro- proliferation of book bans across this country. We want to hear from you. 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Have you seen this in your neighborhood or in the neighborhoods of your families? your friends or people talking about this? Are there any books that you think should be banned? Are there books that kids should not be able to read or access in schools, in your public school, your local school? 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. If you care about free speech, call in. We're going to go to the phones right now. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, you're talking to me, I think, right? Okay. That's you. Connie? I'm Connie, and I'm calling from Manhattan, from Chelsea, and I have five kids um, who are all grown up now, so I've got a bunch of grandkids. And I think it depends on whether you think that there's a way that people should align themselves with so-called good and so-called bad, you know, where, where, where there's a way that they should be thinking. So then if you, if you get some book that's uh, all about doing bad things or, uh, you know, like uh, bombing people or raping people or, you know, any of the stuff that uh, grown-ups really don't like to, to think about that their kids might do, uh, then, of course, you don't you don't have stuff like that. Or if you do, it's a very clear, it has a very clear moral. Uh, when, I, when I grew up, I'm old, I'm 85, so when I grew up, it was like uh, catcher in the rye time, and we would mm-hmm. hand, hand that to each other. And uh, we had to keep it under our desk because it has the F-bomb in it. <laughs> you know, it's a very, very sweet book and everything, but it, uh, they just he says he wants to erase it, erase all the graffiti or something and m- mention yeah. that. So at one point when I gave it to my mother, she said, oh, Connie, the, the language. You know, <laughs> she wasn't used to, to reading reading that or whatever. But, um, but I had had an argument with a friend at the time because people would hand it to each other and say, this is me. And you'd say, no, no, I already read it. I know what you mean. But um, uh, this this guy was saying, uh, all all books have morals. I said, no, they don't. Their books can just be the person's experience, what they're thinking in their life. He said, no, it all has a moral. If they're writing a book, it has a moral. I said, what about Catcher in the Rye? He said, that has the, the plainest moral of all. Are you kidding me? I said, what? He said, don't be that way. Because of course, <laughs> Catcher in the Rye is, is is written from an insane asylum. The guy's the guy's locked up, and he's missing everybody. I mean, that's how it ends. You, you realize it all the way along, but it makes it very clear. Okay, this this guy. So, so you just you just spoiled the book for me, Connie. <laughs> oh, <well>. Jeff. <laughs> There's plenty of other books. Oh, you're the one who reads all the time. I can't believe you never read it. No, I did. I did. Actually, yeah, course, <laughs> he's, ju- he's just a, a but, joker. But Connie, no, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your call. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there was a lot of information in there, a lot of things to think about in that call. But just, mm-hmm. you know, that makes an excellent point, Jeff. I mean, we have Connie here talking about, and she said she's, what, 85 years old. And, um, you know, at that time, Catcher in the Rye was considered subversive in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, was considered highly subversive, not just for the language, oh, but yeah. some of the themes, right? So, yeah. 
Definitely, the, the definitely basic, appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate your call, Connie. Thank you so, so much. 212-209-2877. We know you want to get in on this. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. Jeff and Celeste here. This is Driving Force. It's going to go back to the phones. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? It is Roger from the Milton. Oh, what a surprise, Roger. I feel like I haven't heard from you in minutes. What's going on, man? I'm sorry to take up everybody's time. But listen, it's not, not just books. Books are a source of information. Media is a source of information. And I'll give mm-hmm. you an example, a current example, of electronic information burning, the current coverage of Israel-Palestine. Have you seen Chris Hedges, Abby Martin, Aaron Maté, Gabor Maté, Max Blumenthal on any of the mainstream media? discussing both sides of the issue okay but wait roger okay that and and that that may be that's that's one thing but we are keeping it on book banning today so you have you have thoughts on book banning the books are information okay so so i'm opposed you know i'm opposed to book banning and i'm opposed to information banning uh when we unfortunately see quite a bit of that so that's my two cents, guys. Roger, it. thank you. Thank you for being also a loyal listener and caller on WBI's Driving Forces. We're going to get to another call. I've got another one. Welcome to WBAI. You were on the air. What's your name and what's on your mind today about book banning? Hi, I'm John, and I'm calling from the Bronx, and I don't like book banning at all. Uh, when I think about in the past the things that have been banned and in the context that I am considering it as an adult, just just stupidity. Uh, when that lady was talking about Catcher in the Rye, I mean, geez, that, that sounds so tepid at this point. Perhaps mm-hmm. parents should be more involved with what their kids are reading, and maybe that's the only uh, banning that might be just within a family or parents are, should be aware of what the kids are consuming information wise but uh i am really not into banning i am not that trustful of the people running things and uh some of these school boards sound like they get infiltrated by these uh, kind of religious political nuts and they are no good either john thank you thank you for your insight into that and you know by the way folks um, you know, he mentioned that about the role of parents. And one of the things I was looking at and that Casey had talked about as far as the organizations that track this, the, she mentioned the ALA, which is the American Library Association. And I was looking at their statistics and who initiates these challenges? You know, I th- think that we see a lot of the news coverage and we see that this is happening where there are people who are, you know, saying that these books, certain books should not be in our schools or our libraries. Basically, it's about a third, 30% of the folks who initiate these challenges are parents. And when it comes to libraries, 28% are the patrons. Now, this is what's interesting, too. I was thinking it was political or religious groups that it was largely driven by them, but that's only 17%, Celeste, Hmm, of the folks who initiate these. And interestingly, 15% were boards or administrations, and only 3% were librarians. But going to something you mentioned before, Celeste, too, about what are elected officials, what are elected officials doing? Only 3% of elected officials initiate these challenges to book Celeste. 
That's interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, I think going back to something you said, two can play that game, Jeff. Um, going back to something you said, <laughs> you know, talking about parental choice here. I mean, that is, that is, I mm-hmm. think, really interesting. And if you think of sort of the conservative standpoint generally on these types of issues of personal choice, family choice, right? Why, why is that not enough? Why is it not enough for parents to be able to say, look, I've thought about this with my kids. I've thought about this, uh, with my partner, or with my, uh, my wife or my husband, whatever. And we've decided that you know, certain material is not appropriate for our children. It goes against our beliefs. It goes against, uh, something else that we think or feel. And, and if you keep this sort of a family decision, because we're talking about an entire library of books, there's going to be something in there basically that's offensive to everybody, no matter, no matter what you do. And, and so the idea of this being a, a family matter rather than a public policy matter is very interesting to me. I think we have time for one more phone call. Is that right? We're going to go back to the phones. Last caller, WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Hi, hello. My name is Orlando. I'm calling from Kew Gardens, Queens. And uh, I definitely appreciate the question. I think it's a complicated one because, you know, in my heart, I don't want, I think I agree with most of the callers and everyone, um, I don't want to have to ban books. And I think it's kind of like a maybe a sad statement <clears throat> that maybe it's because I think it's the most extreme examples that come to mind are like maybe you know some hate-filled uh, thing that some you know uh, mass murder created Mein Kampf or whatever one of these latest uh, you know mass murders and you know one of their manifestos and that was published and you know that to me to ban that I think is to protect part of the society at the same time. Um, I don't know. I I just I I don't want it out there, but at the same time, I feel like it also kind of hurt us to not have it available so that it can be uh, used somehow to like I don't know to somehow bring us to a better, more complicated, and more um, holistic uh, mind frame about how things are or how how maybe we should approach things. But I kind of look at it like uh, having a fire at, uh, available on the stove, where like. You know, sometimes a kid isn't, you don't want to have that fire open. You don't want to have that thing available for the kid to touch because they don't know any better. So I think it's a complicated question, and, and it just makes me sad that that I don't, I don't know, that, that we we may not be at a place where we can allow all books. Thank you for, for your call. Thank you, Orlando. Thank you for calling in. So Celeste and I are going to have to wrap up the show in just a minute, but I, a few minutes. I want to also let you know that, you know, if this is an issue that you care about, go online, check. Even when you're Googling, you'll find events that are happening where these, uh, this topic is being discussed. There's one that, and I don't represent this organization. I just crossed paths with them and I, and I told them I'd like to mention it coming up on Sunday, November 12th. The Remember the Women Institute is going to hold a virtual event that morning at 11 to commemorate the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, with a round table of experts discussing book bans in our country. It's moderated by Rochelle Seidel, founding director of the Remember the Women Institute. And they're going to look into, uh, they're going to share insights regarding which societal forces contribute to book bans, how bans in this year mirror the 1933 burning of some 25,000 books in Nazi Germany. That is the Remember the Women Institute. If you look it up online, you'll find out more details. Now, before we go, I also want to tell you that I will be back this Sunday with City Watch at 8 a.m. with my co-host, Carlos Menchaca. We're going to
going to be joined by Luis Miranda Jr., founding partner of the Hamilton Campaign Network. He's going to discuss a new poll finding that many Latino voters in the state uh, feel that the state is doing worse today than three years ago. And then Mark Hugo Lopez from the Pew Research Center will be joining us to talk about another poll which found that about half of non-Spanish-speaking Hispanics in our country have been shamed by other Hispanics for not speaking Spanish. We're going to dive into that much more this Sunday on City Watch at 8 a.m. Now, make sure to tune in to Driving Forces next week. I will be here, but... Apparently, you're going to think Celeste and I are fighting because the next few weeks we're going to not going to be on at the same time because of our conflicting schedules. And I will miss Celeste. But, you know, we text each other a lot during those off weeks anyway. I want to thank today's guest, Casey Meehan, director of the Freedom to Read Project at PEN America, Monica Zari, the Rapid Response Campaign Director at Move On, Reggie Johnson, our engineer, and of course, you, our listeners and our callers. Thanks for always being there. Thank you for supporting Free Speech Radio. Go to WBAI.org today. That is it for today's edition of Driving Force. We upload every edition to SoundCloud, Apple, and Stitcher so you can subscribe and never miss a show. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook as well. Thanks again. See you on the radio.